Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Series 2 of Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. That's me, hello. I'm a broadcaster and journalist and I write the Ask Annalisa column in The Guardian each Saturday. Every week when researching the column, I get to speak to some amazing specialists. And this podcast allows me to go into more detail on subjects that come up all the time. I self-fund this podcast, so if you'd like to support us so that we can make more, you can share it widely. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, you can follow the link in the description of this episode, which will take you to the ACAST supporter page. And if you'd like to listen ad-free, head over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Annalisa Barbieri, where you can become a supporter. We welcome back psychotherapist Chris Mills in this episode, who spoke so eloquently in series one about the art of listening, if you fancy looking through the library for that one. This week, we're talking about how to deal with a difficult older relative. I want to stress here, this isn't about getting older equals being difficult. It's just that if you have a difficult relative, old age makes everything that bit harder. We learn how to deal with someone who needs help but refuses it, or won't give up their car even though they've become dangerous behind the wheel. I think also with relatives, and let's face it, most often here we talk about parents, emotions stop us acting in a logical way. After all, parenting your parents isn't easy. Chris gives some really practical tips, and talking to him really helped me step back and look at things differently, and I hope it does that for you too. I wanted to talk to you today about a problem that I get a lot at The Guardian, increasingly so, and it's from adult children who write in asking for help and guidance about an elderly relative, usually a parent, who has always been difficult, but old age has exacerbated that. And the sort of thing I'm talking about, because obviously we can all be difficult at times, but a person who won't listen, needs help, won't accept it, and really makes things extremely difficult for their adult child. And one of the many reasons I wanted to speak to you was I know that you said something on Twitter to a listener of our season one, The Art of Listening, and you mentioned that this person's mum might be, to quote you, clinging on to her emotional ration book, terrified to spend on you, 
what she has perhaps been deprived of herself. And I just thought that was so interesting. Just to explain that, you know, getting old is difficult. And so we're not saying that people who get old can't complain. But this is really when you have a difficult relative, parent, and then they get older and they need more help. Is this something you've come across? Yes, it is very much. And I think that it is important for us to look at what we mean by difficult, because I know that you're being fairly specific in this case, which is useful. But when I think about a difficult older relative, my thinking kind of pans outwards a bit. And I start by thinking, well, what would an easy elderly relative look like? And kind of, is there really such a thing? Given that I think ageing, getting older, is difficult. I think it's a difficult thing to have to face. And I don't think it's just difficult for the person who is getting older. I think it's difficult for everybody around them too. So, for example, when you're talking about adult children of, in inverted commas, difficult parents, I think for all adult children, it's probably pretty hard seeing your parents getting older for all kinds of reasons. And I think for the person getting older, it's tough getting older too, for a whole range of other reasons that nobody has had any training in talking about or in bringing to the surface or in feeling comfortable with. So if I think about what you're talking about specifically, which is parents who've always been difficult and old age makes them more difficult, it's quite possibly because all the stuff they've never been much good at processing all the emotional stuff of their own that maybe they've never been that good at communicating or putting into words in a very fruitful or relational way, they're simply getting worse at it because as they get older, they're getting more frightened. They're getting more frightened of what getting older is about. They're scared of their own vulnerability. And the more scared they get, the less able they are to talk about it. Yes, I definitely think in the problems that I get and also around me, the examples that I see, there seems to be a power shift and it's about when maybe this relative has become more vulnerable or isn't able to do certain things anymore and something shifts, but their difficulty or their intransigence can actually sometimes cause a lot of pain. I mean, some of the examples I have are someone whose mother could no longer drive safely, but would not give up her car. And she was a real danger to people. And this reader wrote to me just desperate because she didn't know what she could do. Her mother wouldn't listen to her. Obviously her mother, you know, it sort of must be terrifying to think you can no longer do something that you've been doing. A really common one is parents or elderly relatives who need care but won't accept it. And obviously, you know, one can sit and hypothesize about both points of view, but at the end of the day, this is an elderly person who really needs help, maybe quite vulnerable, but just won't accept it. And I think that's when the problems seem to start. You know, sometimes this person may be quite difficult, but has sort of gone along okay-ish, and the, the child has been able to avoid them apart from, say, Christmas, but suddenly they're needed. And it's almost like the relationship becomes, it kind of goes under a microscope and all the things that maybe haven't been attended to when they were you know, younger comes up. I mean, is that the kind of thing you mean? I mean, I think you're saying so much there, you know, that brings up so many different examples of different types of situation. What came into my head when you were going through that was 
actually a couple of things, an elderly relative of mine who is no more, and also an elderly neighbour of mine from years and years ago who is no more, whose children, you know, were just going nuts because the elderly person was so difficult. There was absolute intransigence. There was, you know, a refusal to accept any help. I mean, my elderly neighbour was an extraordinary old guy. He was in his late 80s, and he would purposely go out and trim his hedge on the hottest day of the summer, and he would purposely get up on a rickety little stepladder and he would make a display of himself cutting his hedge, sweating, 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 clearly really uncomfortable. If anybody went and said, you know, can I do that for you? He would have refused angrily. And if he tripped over in his garden or something, he would just keep going. He'd crawl. And I remember when social workers used to come and see him when he was old, they would have to shout through the letterbox to get his attention. And he would swear at them and tell them to, you know, go away in no uncertain terms. And they didn't. And the difference, I think, there is that when you've got professionals who are dealing with a difficult elderly person, they are not in the same kind of relationship with them. And professionals will provide the care that the elderly person needs because they don't take all the swearing and the cursing and the refusing and the spitting and the biting personally. What was he trying to prove by cutting the hedge on the hottest day? What was he trying to communicate to those around him? He was trying to prove to himself, I think, that he could still do it, that he hadn't lost capacity. He was really making things super hard for himself. He really was. He was saying, I can make things super, super, super hard for myself. And it doesn't matter how sorry you feel for me. I'm going to keep going. I am not going to give up. I'm not going to admit to my vulnerability. And that's, I think, what you're putting your finger on too. People who will not say, I'm old and I'm vulnerable and can you help me, please? They don't have the language for doing it. They've never said anything like that. They've never been taught to say that. They've never been taught that that is other than a shameful defeat to say something like that. So do you think, in your experience, that when we get older, we become, illness aside, but do you think we just become more of ourselves, the same person? Because I know another thing that people say is, I'm really scared of that happening to me. And I sort of say, well, but you're not like that now. I'm not saying you won't become a little bit more X, Y, Z, but you're not a really difficult person now. Because I do know people who are really inspirational who are older and for me it comes down to communication and taking responsibility for themselves because there is a big common denominator in some of the letters I get which is a sort of martyrdom especially parents especially I'm afraid to say mothers and they they sort of come across as martyrs you know no I don't want help no I'm fine oh if I die during the night that's fine. Don't feel guilty. It's okay. But then there's a whole load of other people. Now, obviously, people don't write into me to say, my parents are great. So what makes somebody, do you think it's to do with how you were before? Well, I think it's certainly in many cases, it's to do with how you were before, what your personality was like before, how much measured thinking you've been able to do about the fact that you are going to get older and that you're going to lose capacity. And that's a perfectly normal thing, doesn't mean the end of everything. And you've got people who will support you and you can reach out and ask for their support without going through that. Oh, I'm such a burden routine or all of that. We're talking kind of big and small here. You know, the specific examples are very interesting, but I think the huge trends are something that I really like to touch on here too, which is that parenting and our view about parenting and indeed our view about relationships and healthy relationships in our culture has changed massively. I mean, certainly in my lifetime, 
I mean, I, I'm slightly, you know, I'm on the cusp here. I'm in right in the middle of my 60s. I'm not sure which group I belong to. And, you know, maybe I'm one of the kind of crusty old guys now. I'm not sure. But Have they changed? They've changed so much because for one thing, certainly in the last 30 or 40 years, we've begun to talk about vulnerability as if it's normal rather than something to be ashamed of or hidden or pushed away or denied. And that just changes everything. I mean, that entirely changes the landscape. It means that if I have needs, if I need to ask for your help because I can't walk down the street, I'm no longer at fault. It's not shame on my part that means that I can't walk properly. It's no longer a sign of weakness or of failing or of badness or of incompleteness in me. It's simply because I'm getting a bit old. That, I think, really, really has changed. I mean, when I think of my parents' generation, it was so stoical. They went through World War II. My mother came from the north of England, where in those days, you know, you only have to listen to Victoria Wood sort of talking about this kind of almost crazy stoicism, this refusal to accept vulnerability as being something that's other than sort of soft and ridiculous and attention-seeking. So much in that has changed. And I think, you know, it remains to be seen, and I'm in a very dangerous position being at the stage of life that I am now, but I, I, think, I think that actually our generation, certainly my generation, as older people, I'm hoping that many of us will be a bit easier because I hope we'll just be better at saying, guys, can you give me a hand here? I can't manage this. There's something that I was thinking about when you first were talking to me about discussing this, which came to my head immediately, which was from the BBC War and Peace, which was from five or six years ago, where there is a relationship between Prince Bolkonski and his daughter, the Princess Maria, which illustrates so much of what we're talking about, because this old guy is old and he's getting weak and his brain is going and his body is failing him. And he is furious. He's absolutely furious and he treats his daughter monstrously and she absolutely adores him and she's just trying to get close to him. And she's, you know, trying to do all the things that you were talking about when we first started talking about this today, trying to sort of help him and give him what he needs. And he's just being really vile with her, but it's because he needs her so much. He's desperate that she might actually go and get married and leave him, which, she, you know, he doesn't want that at all. It's such a brilliant illustration. It's Jim Broadbent and Jesse Buckley playing the two parts. And it's incredibly moving to watch it because it's, the, it's a story. It's a representation of a story that so many people listening to this will absolutely get, mm. you know, their own version of. I totally recognise that. So instead of actually saying, I really need you, he's almost pushing her away. I mean, it, it seems like such an odd way to behave, but I totally recognise it. I was going to say to you, Chris, is it a generational thing? Because certainly, anecdotally, it does seem to be a lot of people whose parents are sort of 80s and 90s now who were born just before the war, just after the war, or you just didn't communicate in in that way. Although having said that, I have some aunts who are, you know, have been dead for a while and they died in their 90s and they weren't like that. They were very sort of easy to be around and they didn't make their ageing somebody else's problem. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? They didn't kind of... So you could deal with that. And I think for me it comes down to communication, which is that... When they needed help, they said they needed help. And what's interesting, I have a very large Italian family, but even between the siblings, so, you know, the same upbringing, there's a lot of difference in the way that they've approached ageing. Some are very, very attention-seeking, and some are just very, I wouldn't say stoic, because that makes it sound like they need help but aren't asking for it, but they really can... They just take responsibility for themselves. I wonder what the explanation is there. I guess it's personality. 
I think it's probably partly personality and it's probably it's probably individual life experience as well, you know, because even people who are born into the same family, they will make something very different of the experience that that family gave them. Their birth order might make a difference, their gender might make a difference, what happens to them when they've left home and moved forward, the nature of the, the other relationships that they build through life will also make a difference too. Some people will have had reparative relationships which are very different from the ones they started off with and others will have a tendency to repeat the ones that they started off with. So, you know, this divergence that happens through through life and I would never expect that everybody who comes from the same family would deal with the problems in the same way. I mean, for example, this is very archetypal and so a huge generalisation, but quite often, you know, in, I don't know, 19th century novels again, you would see an eldest daughter who is riven with guilt and a sense of duty about looking after her elderly parents. And the younger siblings kind of get away scot-free because the older one's taking all the responsibility. So from that point forward, the, the experiences are very different. And of course, there are some old people who are just very sweet. They're just very sweet natured, they're loving and they're friendly. Probably by nature they're not particularly anxious. Going back to something you know you said early on about the the awfulness for adult children of having really tricky older parents and this sense of grievance, you know, I can't do anything with this parent, I want to help this parent, but this parent is just getting worse and worse. I think there's grievance on both sides there, which is really fueling what goes on. Because I think the old person too is probably also realising that their inner grievances that have possibly made them scratchy for most of their lives are not going to be resolved because time is running out. So that meets the anxious grievance of the son or the daughter who's desperate to try and get this relationship onto a better footing than it's ever been before. But actually what they're seeing is it just sliding over the edge of the precipice and getting worse rather than better towards the end of their parents' life. And that's very, very sad. I mean, that's a difficult thing to see happen. It is. And also I think it's very hard when the role reverses. There's sometimes a lot of denial on both parts. And I think that's also part of it and I don't doubt that it's extremely difficult for for both but I think that we could guess at why people are like that I mean I think experiences as we've said personality some people just aren't very good at dealing with emotions you know they might be in their 20s and 30s now but you know it's not because they're old it's just that some people just aren't very good at expressing how they feel I totally agree about the vulnerability I think there's so much shame there in saying that I mean I know with some elderly relatives we've offered to take them out and they've said no 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 and when I sort of you know kind of dug a bit it's because they need to know that there's a toilet something really easy to sort out but they will sabotage the whole day and not come out and for those around it seems like such a rejection you know they've organized this day but the older relative doesn't want to go and then i think gosh if only you could just say you know of course of course that's completely understandable that you'd want to know where the loo is but they don't because they're ashamed or they don't want to be a burden if anyone's listening to this and sort of thinking you know my mum or my dad or whoever is really difficult what questions might they ask themselves about the life experiences of the parent that might help them therefore understand what's going on. Can I frame it just slightly differently? Because I think mm. the thing that is more useful or would be more useful from my experience, you know, as just as me and also as a therapist, is instead of trying to look back too far into the parent's past, is to look back into the past of this relationship, this relationship that I have with this parent. And what is it that makes it so hard for me 
to talk straight to my mum or my dad when they're being difficult. Let me illustrate that. What I see quite a lot is adult children who are struggling to be nice to this rather cranky old parent or to reason with the cranky old parent or sort of corral them into being different. And the more they try and do that, the grumpier and the more difficult the elderly parent becomes. And this kind of appeasing, I don't think really works. I think actually the relationship, the basis of the relationship needs to change. And it's the younger person, it's the son or daughter who needs to make that change. And that takes an immense amount of courage. But I think that in many cases, if they can take the courage to do that and begin to speak to the parent about what is acceptable and what isn't, sometimes very great things can happen. I mean, for example, I think quite often you will hear or I will hear of people saying to their parent, now, mum, you know that's not very nice, is it? That's not very kind, mum, is it? Nobody means that. Nobody said that. And I kind of imagine myself in the role of the cranky old person and that would really irritate me because it sounds patronising, it sounds quite distancing, it doesn't sound very intimate. What I would prefer, what I would much prefer is, you know, one of my stepsons to say to me, Chris, you're out of order. I'm not going to accept that. I don't want to be spoken to like that. I want to be treated like a real person who's behaving badly and is being stood up to, rather than, you know, somebody who has to be reasoned with or manoeuvred or this, that or the other. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, I'm in danger here because of my age and I do bang on about certain things repeatedly. One of the things I bang on about is I statements rather than you statements. And this, I think, is a perfect example of it. I am not willing to be spoken to like that, Mum. I know you're in pain. I know you're frightened. I know you don't want what's happening at the moment. I fully accept that, but I'm not willing to be spoken to like that. OK, now <laughs> I think that very, very often works because it brings things into a different alignment. But what it what it takes is to talk to your parent in a tone and from a position that you've probably never, ever spoken to them from before. And that takes a lot of guts. So that's what you mean by it's the younger person that has to change. They have to yeah. do something different. Yes. But what about if you've tried that? I would try it again. And you talked about role reversal earlier, and I think that is a bit of role reversal. It is a, it's the younger person beginning to behave like a parent who's saying, actually, I'm not tolerating mm. this bad behaviour. I mean, I suppose also what you're hinting at is something we talked about in The Art of Listening, which is about if you can't speak like that, there is a frailty in the relationship. I mean, I can't imagine talking to certain older members of my family in that way. And it just would not be acceptable. So then what would I do if they just said, don't speak to me like that? Why is it your problem if it's not acceptable? Acceptable to whom? How? Them. I mean, if you say it, it doesn't much matter whether it's acceptable or not, does it? But it, it does if it doesn't move us forward and we just go around in circles and that person just keeps saying the same thing and we're not getting anywhere. I mean, I'd love to be able to talk really directly, but... That could certainly happen if the person that where you know, if the elderly person has got dementia, it may not work, it may not work. So my example there was talking to somebody who is not dementing and who doesn't have that kind of mental frailty, but who is very stubborn and very frightened and is not wanting to admit to their vulnerability or to how you know difficult they're finding life. If you try it and it doesn't work, I would suggest you try it again because there's nothing else that's going to work. That's it. I think we have to make the distinction that we're not talking about people who have 
dementia, obviously, that's a completely different thing. And, yes. and we're not yes. we're just talking about people who don't have dementia, but are just being difficult. I mean, if I can run you through some of the sort of classic problems that sure. people write into me. I had one reader whose mother constantly says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I don't need any help. But then calls them all saying, I can't cope please help me. But then when they try and put any help in place, the mother rejects it. That's really common. And it drives the children mad and it makes them feel so guilty. What do you think might be going on there? What do I think might be going on there? I think there's a sort of push me, pull you kind of thing, isn't there? Which is Mm. very, very, very hard to deal with. Who knows? I mean, it sounds a little bit as if the older person does need help and at certain points they feel so frightened that they ask for it and then they retract because they feel like they've done the wrong thing or they've made themselves into a burden. I think what I would recommend there is that the child or the children talk to the parent and say, actually, what you're doing isn't acceptable. It's not fair that you treat us like this. We are here and available to help you. But we're not here to run around in circles. We haven't got the time or the patience or the energy to do that. So can we talk about why you're doing what you're doing, which is you're pulling us in and then you're pushing us out. We need to know from you why you're doing that. In other words, again, you're treating the old person like somebody who is able to take responsibility for their behaviour and is able to talk about it. And if they refuse, and if they find that very difficult to begin with, that's completely understandable. The thing is to persist and keep going with it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. (laughs) 
Another one is their elderly relative is not eating properly. I mean, I suppose this all comes down to the same thing. They need help, but they're not accepting it. They're not eating properly, but any offer to cook the meals is refused. But the child really doesn't think that their mother or father or whoever is eating properly. What would they do? Because they don't want to kind of patronise by taking over, but they want to help. So what could they do? That's so important, isn't it? I think they're patronising by not taking over because they're not really facing the reality. Well, they're treating their parent as if their parent knows what they're talking about and as if they're making sense, and they're not. So actually, if you've got a parent who's not eating and is refusing help and doesn't want to be cooked for, you cook for them and you feed them and you take all the swearing and the cursing and I hate you and I wish I was dead, you just have to deal with it. And if you can't deal with it, the parent has to make the choice about whether you are going to feed them or whether a medical professional is going to feed them. That's their choice, or whether they're going to feed themselves. You have to be really tough. You have to be really, really, really tough. As parents have to be sometimes. You have to be a parent to your parent. Yes, but I think that is really hard because it's not really linear and sometimes people need help in certain areas and not others. And I think it's very difficult to be able to step in at times and not others. And also, you know, I know from my own experience, it's, it's really hard. I don't want to be a parent to my surviving parent. And I find it really upsetting. That's where I think we go back to where we started, which is that actually old age is difficult. It is difficult. It's hard. It's what you're saying. It's hard. And it's hard for everybody. It's not just hard for the old person. It's hard for everybody who is in the orbit of that old person. And that's a very good example of it. What you're just saying there is, I don't want to be a parent to my parent. I don't want to do that. Mm. Why should you? There's no reason why you would want to do that. And that's why the decisions about how elderly parents are cared for are nearly always very complicated. And certainly in my age group, people talk about it endlessly, about what to do with their parents. What is the right decision? What is the right thing to do? It is hard. It's really, really hard. What sort of things do they say? Should we put mum into a home? She says it would kill her. But actually, if we leave her in her own home, she's going to die anyway because she's not eating. What do we do? And at that point, you know, I've said this to people quite a bit over the years in discussing difficult elderly parents. One of the things, again, it's a, it's a hard thing to say. It's a difficult thing to say until you've said it once or twice and then it gets easier is to say to the parent, look, mum, this isn't just about you. This isn't just about what you want. There are other people involved here including us. This issue about whether you're eating or not isn't just about you. It's about all the people who care about you. And you can't just have it your way necessarily. It's really like talking to a young child who's having a tantrum. But you mustn't patronise them. I find that because don't we sometimes patronise children? Yes, we do sometimes patronise children. But look, sometimes we have to do things for people when they are not capable of doing things for themselves. And if in the experience of that, they feel a bit patronised, I'm sorry, it's a small price to pay. It has to be done sometimes. If it's something to do with their safety. Exactly. Then maybe you can risk a bit of patronage. But if it's not sort of everyday stuff, like don't talk to me like that, then you talk to them as what they are, which is an equal. Yes. What about the car? As a sort of generation of people who have had cars and, you know, use them to be independent, it's very hard for them to give up. But some of them, their children think they are no longer safe to drive. They may have had an accident. 
But yet, because we don't have a sort of retesting process here, they don't know what to do. And I've had people sort of hide that, you know, risk the wrath of their parents. So any advice there about how to stop a parent driving when they're no longer safe to do so? Risk the wrath of the parent. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. What else is there? You know, I mean, I, I've certainly known people who've confiscated the car keys from, from their elderly relatives, because how on earth are you going to feel if you don't and they cause an accident? It's just unthinkable. Mm. It's unthinkable. And the fact that your elderly parent might be absolutely furious with you is seriously a small price to pay, isn't it? But if you don't step in and do things like that, everybody's behaving like a child. The parent mm. is behaving yeah, like a child really and the point. children are behaving like children. Who's going to be the adult? Who's going to be the one who's willing to be hated just in order to get something right? What I get then is people saying to me, almost like, is there a higher power? Like, is there a law that, you know, and I'm like, well, there isn't. You kind of like, if, if you don't think they're safe to drive, it's actually a bit of a grey area about what people can do. But I think it goes back into that thing of sort of telling a parent what to do becomes really hard it seems really alien when you say it it's so logical but I know how hard it is for some people because it's it's about accepting that your parent is never going to drive again it's quite a big thing I understand what you're saying of course when you think about it logically there is no alternative but it's a big big step isn't it it's a really big step and I think it's also very maturing I think it's about stepping into adult shoes you know, when we actually do some of these things. I mean, in terms of taking away car keys from an elderly relative, there are certain things that can help. For example, if they have a very good relationship with their GP, if, if their GP is somebody who they're likely to know quite well if they're old, and if the GP is very trusted, it might be the GP that says, you need to stop driving now. And they might take that from the GP in a way that it would be much mm. easier for them to than from their son or their daughter. And the son or their daughter can broker that with the GP and see if they can, you know, get that in place, which is then, you know, a very sensible thing to do. And it maybe saves a bit of anguish. But the decision itself, I think, you know, to me, it seems unimaginable that one could let one's parent carry on driving, knowing that at any moment, they might run a child over. I just couldn't live with that myself. No, it is really difficult, but I suppose it's also quite hard knowing when that time comes. Very. Chris, I want to talk a little bit about guilt and also boundaries, because guilt is obviously, I mean, the people who are writing into me, they want solutions, but they also feel tremendously guilty. Why are they feeling guilty? What have they done wrong? What is it they would say they've done wrong that they feel guilty for? I would say that probably they feel they're not doing what their parents want, not meeting their parents' needs. I don't know, but they tend to feel pretty wretched by the time they've written in. So what questions could they ask themselves? Well, I guess one of the reasons they might feel guilty is, you know, as we've been talking about, some of these decisions, some of the procedures and the thinking that lead to the making of the decisions some of those things are very difficult and it's hard to know what to do for the best. I think that's why so many people in my generation are constantly talking about their elderly parents. You know, oh, what is the best thing to do? There's this feeling of there must be a best thing to do. You mm. quite often hear, I mean, I, I've heard it uh, quite, quite a bit when parents have died and people are talking about them after their death and they're saying things like, thank goodness we put her into that home just in the last few months of her life, even though she didn't want to go. Wouldn't it have been unimaginable? Look, Looking back if we hadn't, even though she was so upset and angry about it. 
So, you know, sometimes there's a kind of adjusting that goes on after the event, which can redress some of that guilt. I think the guilt is sort of born, in some cases anyway, of a sort of feeling of, of helplessness. I'm, I've just never been in this situation before. I, I don't know how to know whether I'm making the best decision or the worst decision. And mum is shouting at me and throwing things at me. So from her point of view, it looks as if I'm not. I think you need, if you possibly can, family support when you're making these really, really tricky decisions. I mean, I know that, you know, my sister and I were very much linked arms. I mean, we get on very well, fortunately, around the time of my mother's death. And I think for both of us, that was enormously supportive. And it's not because we necessarily agreed over every little thing, but we respected each other's view and we were able to come to a consensus. Now, I know that's very lucky, but my point is really, I think people need support if they can possibly get it from other family members or friends when they're dealing with an elderly relative. And I think that's why people talk about their elderly relatives and the dilemmas that they present so much. It, it can be very guilt-inducing. The guilt also, I think, can be to do with unresolved guilt from previous parts of the relationship, possibly a feeling of never having been the daughter or the son that I think my parent really wanted and, oh my goodness, you know, I'm even less so now making these tricky decisions. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We do definitely think in terms of absolutes. I know that with my own mother, which is that the amount of times I've kind of walked the streets thinking, what is the answer? Someone tell me. And then I've sort of thought, well, actually, there is no absolutely great answer. There's the choices. There's good bits and bad bits in both. And, you know, almost universally, the people that are writing to me have also got children. So they're parenting their children, not really sure what their relationship is with their parents anymore. And it's, it's really difficult. And also, of course, guilt is not always about what's actually happened. As, I, as you've sort of hinted at, it can be about all sorts of other things. And it, it might help to kind of unravel what that guilt looks like. I think, I think we try and shut guilt away. You know, guilt and shame are not attractive emotions, are they? But sometimes if you just sit and think, why do I feel guilty? What's this about? And what's the reality of the situation? And I know that for me, having people say you're doing the best you can, although it didn't really make any difference <laughs> to begin with, because I didn't think I was. Eventually, I had to believe that with so many people telling me that maybe they were right and I was wrong. But boundaries, which I think helps with guilt. So I often say to my readers, you know, if your mum or dad is ringing constantly, don't pick up the phone all the time. You don't have to. I think it's quite important, especially if somebody's being quite invasive. Yes. Yeah. And I think linking that also with what you're saying about the guilt, I think it's so true what you said that if you've got a loved one or a friend or a, a family member or whatever who is saying to you, look, you've done your best. You've been amazing. You've been amazing with your tricky parent. That's lovely to hear, but it's a bit hard to believe. And of course, it's not the tricky parent who's saying that, because if it was, you know, if it was the difficult parent who was saying to you, darling, you've been amazing. You have done so much for me. Don't worry. Yes, I'm in a certain amount of pain, but there's nothing that you can do about that. You've just been incredible. Then you would hear it because that's the person who you really want to hear it from. Mm. And it might be, might be the person that you've never, ever heard it from. And that's why you feel guilty in the first place, maybe because you've never, ever heard it from the person who you most needed it from and who you perhaps never heard it from. Do you see what I mean? So that's oh, why, completely. as you said, 
it takes such a long time when somebody else says it because actually the person we are sort of programmed to believe most is is our mum probably and then our dad you know we're always trying to get their approval and anybody else's approval probably doesn't count for that much until we've got that kind of primary approval so you're right there up against it in this relationship with this difficult elderly parent who is not going to say the things that you would most like to hear I really, I totally agree with that. Some people say nothing I do is ever enough. And so it's thankless. And and that's why I think sometimes you have to put boundaries in and some of the things that, and please add to them, but, you know, I've recommended readers do is, for example, don't take all the phone, you know, depending obviously on the situation, but you don't have to answer the phone every time your parent or whoever rings. You can have boundaries, you can screen the calls, or you could call them so you have more control over when you speak to them. And also, you know, think about what you can do and divvy it up amongst your siblings. So, for example, if one person is better at dealing with dad or mum and maybe they deal with the more emotional stuff, maybe another person is really good at cooking. So you feel like you're doing something to help, but you're not trying to do all of it. Anything else that you can think of that is a good boundary? Well, I think the boundaries thing is a really hugely important thing. And I think it takes us back to what we were talking about earlier about sort of effectively tough love, you know, when you were sort of saying, oh, my God, I can't imagine speaking to my elderly parent like that, that very kind of linear, very tough, you know, I'm not going to put up with this. One of the things that makes, and it's a great idea, I totally agree with you, you know, don't answer the phone, you know who it is, you know what it's going to be about, you don't need to answer the phone. But actually, it's extremely difficult to resist doing that. If again, you're filled with guilt about what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing mm. to do. It's an incredibly hard thing to do. I mean, remember, certainly in my generation, and in generations prior to mine, it would be quite normal for a parent to say to a child, oh, you'll be the death of me. And of course, if you say that to a young child, they believe it. They don't just know it's a saying. They don't just think this is a funny saying. They think their parent is saying, if you carry on behaving like that, I will lie down and die. And in extreme cases, I've even heard of parents who pretended to do that as a way of trying to control their children's behaviour. They would actually lie well, down pretend on the to floor die. and pretend to be dead. Yeah. So, so that that is how unbelievably controlling certain parents can be, and that is why their children live permanently in a shroud of guilt. So, yeah, I agree with you. Mechanically, to not answer all those phone calls is a very, very good idea. Emotionally, to get to the point where you can do that without thinking, "Mum might die if I don't pick up this phone call," and then I will have her death on my hands. It's, you know, really, I suppose what I'm saying is what you were saying before, which is this stuff is hard. It's very, very, very hard. Well, some people are very, very manipulative. And some of those people are parents who get older. I definitely see a lot of that in the letters about they won't ever give the children the satisfaction of having done enough or that what they've done is acceptable or nice. So they constantly they keep going back and trying and it's so painful to read because you think it's never going to get any better. Because I think the other thing that we need to talk about, which is really, there's a sort of fear, you mentioned it about the death of me, of your parent dying. And I think there's the little child in us that wants to keep them alive forever. Well, there might be that. I think there's also quite often the part of us that would quite like them to die. And of course, that also makes us feel unbelievably guilty because we can't help fantasizing about how lovely life might be after this cantankerous old so-and-so has gone. 
And so if we're already feeling guilty, we're definitely not really going to want to admit that one to ourselves. So that sort of adds to the burden. But equally, I mean, along the same track, I think you're right. I think sometimes we fear a parent dying because they are such a towering presence in our lives and always have been that we actually can't imagine what life would be like without them. The whole thing is very frightening. And if we sort of attach that to the idea of, oh, my goodness, maybe I will be the one who is responsible for her death. You know, if I stand up to her and I tell her that this isn't acceptable, she might just have a heart attack in front of me and 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 there we go. So there's all of these things to overcome and they need to be overcome, actually. I think they do need to be overcome. Otherwise, the whole thing is a kind of emotional imprisonment that is dire, absolutely dire. Emotional imprisonment is definitely a really brilliant description of it because I think there's not only the thing of standing up to them and them having a heart attack, but thinking not jumping to attention is neglectful, even though quite often the people writing in are incredibly attentive but they just probably think if I don't answer that phone up one time or if I don't go around to see them that one time and it keeps them tethered to this really destructive behavior it's fine if they want to do it but obviously they're writing in because they don't and they want to find a way out of it any other hints about how someone who recognizes himself in this situation I mean, I guess it's too much to hopeful that a difficult parent is listening and recognises themselves because they usually don't. But if there's um, an adult child listening and thinking, gosh, this is someone I know, any other ideas for how they can look after themselves? Uh, well, it's interesting, you know, that's just such a great point, because my guess is that there are people listening to this who are difficult parents and who do know they're difficult parents and who feel rumbled by what you and I have been talking about and who in a funny kind of way might feel both awkward about that and also quite pleased by it, pleased to have been seen. So if you are a difficult, cantankerous, tricky parent, do something about it. Apologise to your children, show them that you appreciate them and ask them if they will help you to improve things. That would be the bravest thing, the bravest thing you've probably ever done and it would be a brilliant thing to do. So, yeah, I think it's nice to have the opportunity of saying something to a cantankerous old parent. You can do better than this. You're worthy of better than this. And you know it. You know it. But what about to the adult children who are listening? Anything else that they could do to look after themselves? We've, thought, we've talked about some practical things. Anything else? It's this basic thing that I keep coming back to, you know, we talk about it in therapy in all sorts of settings, not just in terms of working with difficult elders, but you can't change somebody else's behaviour. All you can do is change the way you behave around them. And sometimes that means that their behaviour then does change because there's nowhere to run. You know, the mm -hmm. old system doesn't work. If we no longer accept the way somebody has been behaving around us, even if they've been doing it for years and years, if it no longer works, if we no longer start, you know, jumping and hopping about trying to help them all the time just because they bully us, then there's no point in them bullying us because it's not working anymore. And there is in this conversation, I think, quite a lot that we've been touching on, which is, you know, it's universal. You find it everywhere, the bully and victim dynamic. And actually, if we're being bullied by anybody, they'll stop as soon as we're no longer a willing victim. It's just figuring out how to recalibrate that relationship. And nowhere is it harder than in a sibling parent relationship because we are so closely related. We'd probably be quite good at it with somebody else's parent. It's relatively easy with somebody else's parent. It's with our own parent that it's so, so hard. 
Oh God, it's so easy. I often think that people should swap parents for Christmas because like, people say, <laughs> oh, I've got to have my parents over, all my in-laws at Christmas. And I think, but I really get on with your parents because of course they're not my parents or, you know, in-laws or whatever. And I think, I think everyone should swap because then you don't have all that emotional baggage. Of course, Chris, you and I have to keep this episode and listen to it weekly as we get older to make sure we don't <laughs> fall into any of these traps. I'm feeling pretty awkward about that, I must say. I'll tell you why. I was thinking the other day, you know, one of the things that's always, I can understand why it's so irritating for children of old parents when, when the elderly parent goes, oh, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden. And the child is thinking, do you know what? That's when you're being a burden, when you're saying, I don't want to be a yes. burden. And I was thinking about my stepsons the other day and me getting a little bit older now. And I was thinking, oh, I really don't want to be a burden. And I thought, oh no, slippery slope, you know, I'm on it. Mm. <laughs> so actually- so what would you say instead then? Well, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, it is maybe it is a slippery slope, but but I've got a really good friend and she is doing something which I think is very wise. She's got elderly parents and she's in her early 60s and she started making a notebook for herself about how she doesn't want to be if she survives into her 80s. These are kind of instructions for self for her to read when she's in her 80s, you know, don't talk to your daughters like this. Don't say things like that. Don't be all martyrish around this, that or the other. And she's making this quite detailed log of how not to be, how at the age she is now, she knows she doesn't want to be when she gets older. I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it's a great idea for all of us to do that. Well, that's interesting because actually in the book that I'm writing, one of them chapters is a letter to my older self because people often write letters to their younger self, which is great, but I'm not that person, but I am going to become an older self. And I have got a whole list of things, which I wrote in a notebook, which I then left on a train. So I hope that someone finds it and finds it useful. <laughs> Every time <laughs> that someone did something that really irked, I'd write it down. And the things I remember are accept help if you need it accept gifts with grace and just say thank you thank you that's lovely comb your hair brush your hair every day that was another really weird one i had a whole list of them mostly sort of psychological things not to say so yeah i, th I think that's a brilliant idea but then when we get to that age and we read it will we know that we're doing those things or will we just kid ourselves that we are not well I, you know i'll tell you when we're there you know perhaps we'll have to to meet for lunch or something and we'll probably sort of snooze off afterwards over our unfinished glasses of wine but i you know who knows who knows whether that will work or whether it won't but you used a lovely word a moment ago which is irksome and i think we need to remember this that when we find somebody else's parents their elderly parents really sweet and nice and quite funny and quite entertaining it's because we are a change in their lives. We're a bit of stimulation. We're something coming in from outside. So when they're with us and we're chatting in a very interested way to them and we're showing a great deal of interest in them, they probably don't feel so irksome to themselves for a few minutes. And I think one of the things for a lot of old people, if they're in pain and if they're not sleeping properly and if eating is difficult, etc., 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 they can no longer listen to the radio or read the newspaper or whatever, I think they find themselves pretty irksome. And I think a lot of their irksome behaviour is then a kind of projection outwards of that and that kind of longing for comfort. Who are we most likely to be horrible to in that situation? It's going to be the people who are nearest to us. Now, 
I don't think that means that just automatically has to be tolerated. I think that old person who probably feels irksome is going to feel less irksome if they don't feel they're being steered around and controlled, but as if they're actually being related to as a real person. I'm holding out for that, Annalisa. I can't promise that when I'm in my 80s I'll still agree with it, but that's that would be my letter to my you know to my older self that that older self well at least we're thinking about it at least we're thinking about it which i think a lot of people who and um, laughing nervously i have to say (laughs) but a lot of people who write in about their parents it's clear that the parents have never thought about it so i think at least we're thoughtful if anyone's listening to this and their parents aren't elderly yet but they have a difficult relationship with them and they think oh I can see what's coming on the flight path here I mean one of the things you've said is look at your own behavior maybe change the way you speak to them but is there anything that they might be able to do now to make the older age of their parents who are already difficult not quite as bad as it could be you know we've talked about all of this being hard. And I don't think there's any escape route from that. I think it is hard. It's individual and it's hard. It's really difficult. But I think that if you're a younger adult and you've got younger difficult parents, I mean, the first thing I would say is, wow, start now. The earlier you can start in on your difficult parents and try and adjust and improve the relationship, the better. What I think is even harder about that, though, is that If you're young yourself, if you're just, for example, in your 20s, you're not going to have much experience of life of feeling senior. Now, you know, when you get into your your sort of 50s and beyond, people around you in your life generally will treat you increasingly as a senior. They'll treat you as if you know what you're talking about. They'll treat you as if you've been round the block a few times. And of course, you actually have. You've gained a great deal of experience by then. So I think when you're older, standing up to a difficult older parent, in theory, should be easier because you've got more adult seniority gravitas to draw on to help you muster all of that. When you're younger, you've got much less of it. I mean, quite a bit of my work, for example, these days is involved with working with fairly young employees of professional organisations. And I really see it in the people I work with who are in their 20s and 30s, that they sort of lack a fundamental confidence that what they say, I mean, many of them are super bright and what they say is incredibly, you know, on point, but they don't have the confidence of believing that they will be taken that seriously by people who are older. So I think in a way that is an added challenge, but I wouldn't say delay it unless, you know, I don't know, it's very easy to delay it, isn't it? There are probably far more enjoyable things to do when you're in your 20s and 30s than tackle your tricky parents. You're probably quite glad to have turned your back on them for a while. But if, you know, maybe go and see a therapist, maybe go and even see a family therapist and just talk about it get some ideas because it's never too early to stand up to unacceptable behavior if you can learn how to do it it's never too early to do that and you know if it makes things less problematic later on then it's got to be a good thing or move country which is something that readers siblings seem to do because quite often they write in and say my brother or my sisters moved to Australia or the other side of the world and I'm left dealing with them so that's also an option (laughs) well you know can you can you move to the other side of the world without guilt because if you can do it without guilt go for it leave your guilt behind well a lot of people mistake geographical distance for emotional distance and as we know (laughs) if you're prone to guilt and things like that you can't travel far enough that's so, very, absolutely. very true. 
Guilt also turns up in Australia. Yeah, that is a shame, isn't it? Guilt travels with you. (laughs) Not something you're ever going to see on a tourism poster. (laughs) Thanks so much to Chris Mills. His website is chrismills.uk.com. If you're an older person who is struggling or a relative of one, I just want to remind you of the wonderful organisation called Age UK. And if you're listening from outside of the UK, do see if your country has something similar. I've spoken to Age UK many times over the years, and just to give a different side to this discussion, they often get calls from older people saying the younger relatives in their life are not listening, or being stubborn, or trying to take over. We also have to remember that just because a person is older doesn't mean they don't have agency or can make decisions for themselves. But yes, it's really hard, super hard, when someone we love needs help and refuses it. Age UK has a helpline and some excellent resources online, which I'll put in the episode description. Just to say that nothing in this episode applies if your elderly relative has dementia, and if you suspect they might have it, do try to convince them to visit their GP. We'll be covering the topic of dementia in a future series. In the meantime, DementiaUK.org has some very useful information. The series is produced by Hester Kent. The music is by Toby Dunham. And our artwork is by Lo Cole. Follow us on social media, on Instagram, at Pocket Annalisa. You can read my Ask Annalisa Barbieri column in The Guardian magazine every Saturday. And we'd love to hear your suggestions for topics you'd like us to discuss on future podcasts. Please email us at conversationswithanalisa at gmail.com. If you enjoyed and benefited from today's episode, do please share it with someone else you think might find it useful. And it would mean a lot to us if you could give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening and do join us again. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in, so much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free, so if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.